Thank you for being here. I knew I was going to be a little late, and, uh, and, and the musicians would be doing this, expand, expand, so I appreciate them c continuing to sing when they might not have been quite ready to do that, so thank you. And let's get to the text now. So we've done two of these disputations. The first one was uh, uh, in chapter 1, verse 2, uh, I have loved you, says the Lord. They say, how have you loved us? And then in chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9, um, it, it was, it was uh, if you want to look back there, we can see the beginning of it. He says, uh, it's, it starts at verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Well, that's where we are now. Uh, sorry about that. 1, 6 uh, was the second one. He says, The son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And he, he charges them that you have defiled my name. And they say, how have we defiled your name? And of course, that's what we did last night. So he talks about how they, the kind of sacrifices they'd made. Uh, they were doing inappropriate animals, animals that were, that were banned from sacrifice. They were bringing them. People were stealing animals and bringing them for sacrifice. They were pulling the old switcheroo, you know. You've got this fine animal that's one year old, it's perfect, it should be sacrificed, but then uh, they leave it at home and steal one on the way that would be blemished and, and, and the priests are offering it. And so as a result of all that, he said, I will curse you. Uh, and we talked about all that last night. So now we're ready for the third disputation, which begins at chapter 2, verse 10, and it's, how are we unfaithful to you, God, and to our brothers and sisters? So he says at chapter 2, verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, uh, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So now the, now the dispute becomes, God says, he, he sort of poses it in the form of a question, uh, why have you been faithless to me and to your brothers and sisters? And so what we learn at the beginning of this one is they'd made this covenant with God. They had agreed to a covenant with God. It's the covenant that God made with Moses. They had agreed to it. They had, they had said, okay, we'll enter into this relationship with you and we'll keep our responsibilities. And they had not. Now, they had been faithless to God. They, they'd failed to show faith and reverence for God. But that's not what he focuses on here. It is... If you have pledged your loyalty to God, you've also pledged your loyalty to one another. That is, among the people of God. So if you are not faithful to your brothers and sisters, you are violating your covenant with God. It, it, it is a reminder that our relationships with one another reflect our relationship with God. You can't say, I'm faithful to God, and then... Be, have these constant um, bickering and fighting and, and, and being unfaithful to your brothers and sisters. It, it, it's sort of, sort of that idea, you know, you, you, you can't bless God and then curse 
those who are created in the image of God. Your relationship to one another is a reflection of your relationship with God. You can't claim that you're right with God when you're not right with your brothers and sisters. And so how specifically or what example will he use of how they are faithless with one another? And, and that's what he just, I, I read it, he says, uh, it's in verse 11, second part of 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So here's, here's the specific way he says, you have not been faithful in, in your relationships with one another. He says, uh, you have taken the daughter of a foreign god. So what is that? Interfaith marriage. The problem is interfaith marriage. Now notice, I didn't say interracial marriage. That's not the problem. The problem is not that they might have married someone just, just who wasn't an Israelite. The problem is they're ma they've married someone who worships a foreign god. Interfaith marriage. Now, he starts this whole uh, section with this affirmation that I am your father, that God is, there, is our father. So he's creating this sense that we are part of one family, the family of God. What they've done by looking at these exotic foreign women who are not part of the women of their youth, these Israelite women, that they are sort of going outside the family. Now it's not an incestuous relationship that you marry in the family, but the family is the people of God. And it is God's absolute intent that you marry within the people of God. It ultimately is not about race or ethnicity. It's about, does someone worship the true God? So now this idea that God is Father, I mentioned it, it's already come up earlier, but just a couple of verses to reinforce that. Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your Father? Who has bought you? Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are a potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Even a passage like Hosea 11, 1, when he talks about Israel and, and the, and the um, Exodus, he says, Out of Egypt I called my son. So if he refers to Israel as his son, that means he's their father. So, so that's where this all begins, that God is our Father, we have one Father, we are one family of God. But they have violated that by marrying women, daughters of foreign gods. And he calls it an abomination. He says there in verse 11, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed. Now, to think that, well, this seems like sort of a minor issue... He uses this word abomination. It's a word that is used in the Old Testament for a variety of things, and they're always really bad. I'm just going to give you a few, just to give you a sense of the kinds of things that's called an abomination in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, it's idol worship. So to worship an idol, to worship a, 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 some god other than the true god, a, an idol fashioned out of wood or stone, that is an abomination. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 27 through 30, 
A number of things are called an abomination that involve immoral sexual practices, perverted even sexual practices, uh, like human beings having sex with animals or men having sex with other men. That's called an abomination. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 13, you have participation in, demo- in the demonic, uh, in human sacrifice, in the occult. It's called an abomination. So, so this is the level of, of, of issue that we're talking about. So when he says an abomination has been committed, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, or the holy thing, literally, it just says in Hebrew, uh, and I think the sanctuary of the Lord is a fine translation. It says that it, you violated the temple. And I think that's appropriate. It could just be the land, the holy, the holy thing. You, you, have, you have violated the land in some way. Uh, you have profaned the land. I mean, look, look at how um, he words this. He says, Judah's been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. I mean, this is the land that God had given them. To marry the daughters of a foreign god is to defile this land that God had given them. I mean, it could have some aspect uh, of the land here. It could just be talking about the covenant, the holy thing. You have violated the covenant you made with God when you marry the daughters uh, of a foreign god. It could, as this translation indicates, be a reference to the temple, the sanctuary of the Lord. Or the holy thing could just be saying you have violated God's character. It is a violation of the character and nature of God to marry the daughter of a foreign god. Uh, this, is the, this is the first dispute that he has with them here. Now, What's the problem with marrying the daughter of a foreign god? Why is that an abomination? Why does that rise to such a high level here? Let's think about the Old Testament. I'll I'll read you the law. Here's the law, and it's in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Canaanites, etc., and when the Lord your God delivers you before, them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. He's talking about when God gives you the land that he promised. You shall make no covenant with them, you should show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. That's the commandment. So what's the problem with marrying the daughter of a foreign god? There is a very high likelihood that rather you bringing that person into relationship with the true God, so that they start to worship the true God, there's a much greater likelihood that they will pull you away from worshiping the true God. And of course, the the parallel to this would not be if you marry someone of a different color of skin, someone from a different different nationality, of a different ethnicity. That wouldn't be the parallel. It would be, do you you marry someone who rejects the true God? And so let's not confuse this with interracial marriage. That's not the problem. And, and an Israelite could marry a non-Israelite, 
as long as the woman worshiped the true God, acknowledged the one true God. I mean, you think about um, Moses' wife is Zipporah. She's a Midianite. But she didn't worship a foreign god. Um, you think about Joseph's wife was Aseneth. She's an Egyptian. But she didn't worship a foreign god. We, I think we hold Ruth in pretty high regard, don't we? I mean, generally speaking, if you had a, a son, I don't think you'd, you'd, you'd be um, upset if your son married Ruth. She's a Moabite. So it's not about ethnicity. And I keep saying that because we just, there's still enough of a sense out there, even between uh, some, uh, uh, maybe uh, um, a white and a black. I mean, I, I think I still feel some of that with, with some people I know in Kentucky, even some of my family members. If we go to a restaurant and we see, a, a, say, a, a white female with a black male and it appears that they're married or they're dating, um, there'd be antagonism towards them. They might not say anything to them, but there'd just be some sense of that's not right. And when I passed, I pastored a church in that area uh, for two years. And that middle summer that I was there, I had a call from a member. I think I may have told you this story when I was doing 2 Corinthians because it comes up there, don't be unequally yoked. Um, that passage is often used in the same way. But uh, a girl there had gone off to college her freshman year. Uh, she had met a young man there uh, who happened to be black. She was white. They date, started dating. She had been fearful to tell her parents because she was afraid they'd be upset. She'd come home over for summer break and decided she, she was going to have to tell them. She told them they were not happy. They wanted to meet with the pastor. Now, you know, I'm, I'm 20... I don't know, it was 1986, so I'm 21 years old, <laughs> and now I'm sitting here in the middle of the, at, at the office in the church between these parents and this um, college sophomore-to-be, and they want me to tell her why God does not want her to date this black boy. And when I showed hesitance to tell her that, when it was clear I wasn't quite going along with what they, wanted, they expected me to say to her, they questioned whether I'd been reading my Bible because it's so clear on issues like this. Uh, and, of course, they used the unequally yoked passage. And I don't remember if they used this one uh, specifically. Uh, heck, they may have used the curse of uh, Cain. I don't remember all the passages that they used that were so clearly misused. But finally, in that meeting, I had to say, I can't tell her that because I don't believe that's true. And they weren't very pleased with me. They, they, we moved on, and I don't know if she continued to date him or not, but I can't remember that. Uh, I remember they didn't leave the church, though, so I consider that a small victory. But it's easy to turn some of these texts into something that they're not. This is not about interracial marriage. Uh, it's about interfaith marriage. And, uh, you know, this I used to talk about when I was uh, probably starting to date missionary dating. Like that was a good excuse to date somebody who was not a Christian. You say, well, I'm trying to win them to Jesus or something like that. 
I, I, I don't, I can count on one hand the number of times that's worked. But I can recount many situations where it worked the other way. Where as a result of someone getting into relationship with someone who's not a Christian, it pulled them away from their faith. And uh, that's, that's essentially what uh, God saw happening here with these Israelites in 450 B.C. who they saw all these Israelite women that they'd known all their lives, but now, now they look around and there's some of these more exotic women. And uh, it sounds like they're thinking about giving them a try or maybe have already. Now that's the first way in which they violated this God is our Father, we are one family. They have worshipped um, the daughters of foreign gods. The second issue is divorce, verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, why does he not accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now there's a little translation issue here. Uh, not, not, not 100% sure of the best translation for it. The ESV translation, and I think the NIV also, says something like, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Now, is that what your translation says at Malachi 2.16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her? Uh, the New American Standard translation says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence. So it's there at the beginning of verse 16. So, how many of you have a translation that says something like, For the man who does not, does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. That's what your translation says. Okay, quite a few of you. How many of you have one that says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence. How many of you have that? Okay. So you can see there's sort of a split uh, on that point. I tend towards the translation... Uh, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, but that may just be uh, tradition for me. But, but that's what I expect the verse to say. And I think it's a legitimate way to translate it. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, and him who covers his, wife, his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So now the issue is not interfaith marriage, it is divorce. And so you, you have Israelites who have divorced the wife of their youth and perhaps married for the daughters of foreign gods or just divorced. They've divorced and then they come to make their offering, to make their sacrifice at the temple and they feel like God's not listening, God's not accepting their sacrifice and they're like, they're weeping and moaning and, and, and making a grand display of why God does not accept their offering. And God's pretty matter-of-fact about it. Why does he not? 
Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, so she's your companion and your wife by covenant. And in a, in a very short period of time here, amount of time, amount of space in the text, uh, the text really hammers uh, just how high marriage is. Just what a, what a significant commitment marriage is. Um, God is witness of it, is one of the ways that it highlights how serious it is. I, I do quite a few weddings uh, along the way, um, a couple a year anyway, which is a pretty good amount for somebody who doesn't actually pastor a church. And every time I have to take my little, uh, my little uh, information that tells me my uh, credential numbers that I have to write in there so that it's legal, and then there, there's two witnesses that have to sign. And we almost always get the best man, the maid of honor. That's, that's typically who signs that, who are signed. So I'm on there with my credentials, and then you've got your two witnesses. And that's important. That's important for it to be illegal, legal. But there's no place on that for God to actually sign. But God is the most important witness of that commitment between a man and a woman. Whether you see God standing there, you know, there, there's a trinity there, but it's, it's the one who's performing the ceremony and the man and the wife. What, what you don't see there is the trinity, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is witness of this event. And it uses the language there that this is a covenant that is, that is being made between a man and a woman. It is not a legal transaction. It is not a civic event. It is a covenant, and God is the witness of it and seals it. It is a serious matter, then, to go back after the fact and attempt to break that covenant. It's always a serious matter to break a covenant that you've made with God. And by virtue of God being the witness of a, of, a, of a marriage relationship, if you divorce your wife or your husband, you are breaking a covenant you made not only with them, but also with God. It's a very, very serious matter. Now, if you're looking for a sort of a biblical theology of divorce, um, we can do just a little bit of that. Uh, where, where, do, where does this whole idea of divorce uh, being so significant, where does it come from? Well, it starts with the creation account. I mean, that, almost everything goes back to the creation account. If you want a theology of anything, it almost always goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. But you think about Genesis 1, verse 27. How did God make us? God created man in his own image, Male and female, he created them. And he gives them the blessing, be fruitful and multiply. Then, in Genesis 2.24, he says, Therefore, a man should leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. Now, that's the beginning of any kind of a sort of a theology of marriage. It begins in the creation account, how God has made us, and the way he has fashioned us to be male and female. Not only as a way to preserve the species, 
but as a helpmate for one another. And then this image of the two becoming one flesh. So what happens when you divorce? It's not just you go down to the courthouse and, and sign some papers and legally now it's over. It's much more severe than that. The two have become one flesh. So what happens when you divorce? It's a violent act of ripping apart one flesh. It's like amputation. It's like cutting the body in half. Doesn't that sound like a violent image? Well, did you notice the text as I read it here? It refers to divorce as an act of violence. He uses the image of blood on your garment. And oftentimes there's domestic violence where there's literal blood that sort of leads up to a divorce. But even if there's never any domestic violence, it's still a violent act because you are ripping apart one flesh. And we all know what happens when you rip apart the flesh. It's a violent act in and of itself. So I'm an Altus last week. And we came upon this text, um, I guess probably on Tuesday night. A woman comes up afterwards. Uh, you can tell when somebody's waiting around to talk to you. And uh, she said, uh, she started to cry. She said, I, I, I told myself I wasn't going to cry. But uh, she had just, her divorce had been finalized that morning at 1030. At, she'd gone down to the courthouse for something, whatever. I don't know exactly how the process goes. But she, she had just, and, and she started telling me her story uh, her husband, who the divorce had just become final, had been living with another woman. He'd come back home. She wanted to work it out. He left again and would not uh, go to counseling, would, didn't want to have any, other, any part of her, and she had no option. And, um, and you know, then I'm, I'm thinking about how how hard this text must sound to someone who that morning had just been through divorce. But as we talked, she felt like she'd been the victim of violence even though he'd never laid a hand on her. She felt like her life had been ripped apart. All her memories, they'd been married for many years. Her, her life, her memories were so wrapped up in, in this individual and now just been ripped apart. And... Uh, she, she used the image of, um, of, of, of paper that, that's, I forget what, exactly how it worked, but somehow paper being stuck together, glued together for like 25 years and then trying to rip that apart and seeing how when you did, it didn't come apart neatly um, was, was the way she described it. And, and I... I th yeah, I think that works pretty well. And if you think about just ripping it apart violently, you really get the image. So, I think the text says to us, God hates divorce. It, it is a violation of our covenant with him and with one another. And it's, it's a violent act in, in a way. It, it rips apart this one flesh. And... If you are unmarried, if you're young and dating and thinking about marriage, then this is really a text you need to pay close attention to. It will remind you of the seriousness 
of the commitment you're making when you say your I do's. Uh, if you are in a marriage, and I don't know how you would describe the problems you're having, you might say it's not working or we're, we don't care, we don't love each other anymore, those kinds of things. I would say this text would be a call to make absolutely every effort possible at reconciliation and finding a way to make the relationship stay together. If there's any possibility of doing that. And then, as is often the case when I go to a church with this many people gathered together, I'm sure there are people here who've been divorced, you've remarried, and this relationship is, is such a better relationship. Maybe the other relationship, your spouse wasn't even a believer. Now here you sit in church together. You're serving God together. You're, you're doing more for the kingdom. And I say, thanks be to God for his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace. And, and there's that offered to us if we find ourselves going through a divorce that we, in a relationship that cannot be repaired. But if there's any way to repair, that's the course we should seek. But there's not always. And sometimes it's just desertion. Somebody will not stay with the other. And that person has no, there's no remedy for that. Um, and, and so that's where we start with a theology of divorce, with the creation account. Deuteronomy 24, you remember that passage where they're granting certificates of divorce? where Moses is writing up certificates of divorce. And, and the reason why he's doing that, it's for the protection primarily of the woman. In ancient Israelite culture, it was very rare and very difficult for a female to initiate a divorce proceeding. Uh, and it was not, you know, there was no courthouse to go down to and sign the papers anyway. Uh, the male held all the cards. And so what a man might do, because he has evil in his heart, just cast his wife aside for another woman, maybe a daughter of a foreign god, who knows. And now she's at great risk in this culture. Uh, maybe, she, maybe perhaps she finds someone else and they get married, and then he comes back later and says, she's my wife, she's committed adultery. It's her word against his. Uh, or he comes back years later and says, that's my wife, I want her back. And the certificate of divorce gave her at least some standing to say, oh no, look, I've not committed adultery on you, you divorced me. Or I'm not going back with you, You're, you, you left me years ago and I, I've moved on, something like that. So it was to protect the female more than anything else. But does the fact that Moses granted a certificate of divorce say that God's good with divorce? That God sees that as a viable option when things just don't kind of go the way we think they should go? Well, we get to the New Testament. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it said that if you divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, if you divorce your wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, uh, you've, you have made, you, you've made her into an adulteress. 
She's, and the assumption is, you also now commit adultery if you're with somebody else. So he says, you've heard about this certificate of divorce, but I say to you, if you divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality. Now he does give that out. That's a bit of an escape clause. But I will say, that's, that does not mandate then you get divorced if there is sexual immorality. If a husband or wife, if a spouse could overcome that very egregious violation of the relationship, then they should stay together, if possible, if the person is repentant and is, is finished with that kind of activity. But it does provide that possibility. Uh, it's an exception, the exception clause, sexual immorality. Then, in Matthew 19, they come around and ask Jesus again about divorce. And now they're trying to put him on the spot. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says essentially uh, the same thing, except for sexual immorality, no. And then he brings up again their certificate of divorce, and he said it was never God's intention. He quotes the two should become one flesh uh, passage, and he says, but Moses was granting them because of the wickedness of human hearts. Because we live in a fallen world, where human beings do not always act faithfully, sometimes human beings do things that rip that one flesh apart, and it can't be restored. And for that reason, Moses is granting the certificate of divorce, but it was never God's intention that it be that way. And then Paul brings, brings up the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And there... He, he offers another exception whereby one might be free, set free from the covenant relationship that they've made. And it is abandonment. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, which he, would, he certainly wouldn't have recommended that they marry that way, but it could be they were married as two unbelievers and one of them becomes a believer. Now you have a believer married to an unbeliever. And the unbeliever wants no part of that life. Like life better before. Doesn't want to be married to a believer. And so essentially they leave them. Abandonment. Paul says you're no longer bound in the matter. You're free. But that's it. So in sort of a quick theology of marriage and divorce, I hope what comes out of what I'm saying is how significant and how, how profound the marital commitment is. It is a covenant that you make with one another and before God. It is not a legal agreement. I mean, it is, but that's much less significant than a, it is a covenant you're making with one another before God as witness. And when I do a wedding, I would never say, by the power granted me by the state of Oklahoma. That's not why I do a marriage or the power or authority I do that marriage under, I do it under the authority given by God. And if we lose that and marriage just becomes a legal agreement, now we're at the mercy of the law. And if they say a human and an animal can be married together, then that's the law. But if we think of marriage as something that it transcends you know, pieces of paper you sign at the courthouse. I think it gives us much more of a moral standing to say, no, we're not going to perform weddings of that type. 
because we believe it's a commitment between a man and a woman before God, and God is witness of it. And uh, I think we've lost something in our ability to, to uh, resist some of the changes in, in our culture that's going on because we've sort of surrendered marriage to a civil, legal agreement that is really the work of the state uh, instead of being uh, something that's much more uh, a covenant before God. Well, uh, that's my quick theology of divorce. Now, I needed to cover the fourth disputation. Our time was cut short, but here's the good news about that. The sermon on Sunday morning was from this text. So I can summarize it pretty quickly and get us out on time. The fourth disputation begins at 2.17 and goes through 3.5. And it's, it's, verse 17 says, You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So that's the, <clears throat> that's the first dispute they have. They're asking God, where is the God of justice? He says, you've wearied God with your words. They say, how have we wearied him? And he says, well, you've wearied him in, in, in your, your questioning the God of justice. If God is a God who sees evil and calls it good, then that's a legitimate question. Where is the God of justice? If good is evil and evil is good, then there's no justice. Where is the God of justice? And he says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. So here's the, here's the summary of that. If you sit around all the time, look around the world, and you see how unfair it seems and how evil seems to go unpunished so often and how the righteous seem to suffer, if you look around and see how, and, and I'm not sure any of us are innocent, but if the more innocent among us seem to experience great tragedy and then you have those who appear to be more wicked and they seem to do so well, and you look around and you say, boy, I just want Jesus to come back so he can, you know, he can punish these evildoers. The book of the Twelve, the prophets who write in the book of the Twelve, including Joel and Amos and Malachi, would say, you better think long and hard before you keep, you keep talking about, boy, I wish Jesus would come back and crush all this evil. You better look in the mirror. Because you just might find there's wickedness in you. Or there's a lack of commitment. Or there's a lack of obedience to God. Or there's a lack of justice in the way you're living your own life. It's so easy to look around and see what others need to do. And not look at yourself. But, here's the good news about that. If you are part of the people of God. Yes, the day of the Lord might be not all the excitement and joy you'd hoped it would be you know you might have hoped it'd be more of a party 
when in fact there will be refinement there will be cleansing that will take place and sometimes that's painful and the images of a refiner's fire or a, of a fuller's soap someone who works with garments like a dry cleaner almost who, who uses some sort of you know like lye soap to clean you clean the garment up but we will not be destroyed as God's people that that fire and that soap is to refine us to purify us for those who are not God's people that fire will be a fire of destruction so it, it's it's a reminder it's a wake-up call that at the present time even though there's a great deal of injustice in the world evil does seem to be having uh, its day before you just wish Jesus to come back and make it all right, you better look in the mirror. Ask yourself, am I prepared? And so the announcement that the day of the Lord is coming in the prophets is always a warning. People, get ready. And I think on Sunday morning I use the one, two, three magic. You know, sort of, sort of like God says, that's one, that's two. And we're waiting for that's three. And in the meantime, we have the, the possibility of preparing ourselves, repenting, and getting ourselves, preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord. So that day will be a day of joy. Now that's four uh, of the six disputations. So tomorrow night, uh, we will pick it up uh, at, uh, that, that last one goes through three, uh, five. So we pick it up at 3, 6 through 12, Disputation 5, where he says, return to me, I will return to you. And they say, how do we return? And um, then at, uh, let me see, 3, 13, going through 4, 3, the dispute is about, is it useless to serve God? It, it sort of, again, is that question about, is God just? Do we... It seems like those of us who are trying to do right, there's not much benefit to it. Is it useless to serve God? And then he comes down to the last two verses, 4, 4 through 6, with a little conclusion that looks ahead uh, to the New Testament. It's a perfect ending uh, to the Old Testament and, and to the book of the Twelve. So that's, that's the third and fourth disputation, and uh, it's 7.30. So, did you go home last night and catch any of the uh, football game? You know, football's kind of a big deal around here, uh, and, uh, as, as, you, as you well know. Uh, and so, those of you who pay attention, were you happy to see Alabama lose? <laughs> All right. I thought maybe you might see that as an example of the wicked uh, being punished uh maybe there's a little bit of justice in that I, I i don't know but i will say about clemson i've i've got a very close friend who pastors a, uh in south carolina and he's a clemson alum so you got to say that but he's been saying for several years that that dabo sweeney is a wonderful christian man and is really someone that you can you can you can have some confidence in uh, that he's, he's, he's trying to do things the right way there, and he's making a great impact on those young men. 
And uh, it sure, sure seemed that way uh, in the post game. And so, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm not going to go all in on anybody like that because I don't know them. And and they may come out in the news tomorrow with something terrible. So I'm not hanging my hat on Dabo Sweeney. Dabo, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I, it, it was a pretty good post game if you made it that late. Uh, they seemed to be trying to give God some sort of glory in the whole thing. So. There it was. Well, tonight it was just Kentucky basketball, so I'm sure they won. Uh, they're probably finishing up right now, so we're not too worried about them tonight. So uh, I'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow night, and uh, I may leave at 4 o'clock tomorrow night to get here by, by church time. What time is it tomorrow night, Owen? 6.30 again, so yeah, I might need to leave at 4, and I might just show up at your house if I'm that early and need to hang out somewhere, so... <laughs> Are thinking, is he talking to me? <laughs> I'm just going to leave it open. I may show up. Well, I'll ask a blessing on you and uh, we'll be dismissed tonight. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. See you tomorrow night.